0: Well, we've been in our new home for almost two years now, and believe it or not, this is the first home I've ever lived in that has had a lawn. So two years ago, for the first time in my life, i mowed a lawn. And at first, it's fun. Not really anymore, but at first. Also, along those lines, two years ago, I got my very first pet gopher. <laughs> Aren't they great? They come to your property, they make themselves right at home. As most of you know, gophers can actually do a lot of damage to your property, to your your lawn, your garden, your your plants, even your property value. And so it's no surprise that there are many gimmicks and methods for getting rid of gophers that's turned into a big business. People are so frustrated by them. You can go the repellent route like castor oil. That never seems to work. You can get sucked into the gimmick of those sonic spikes, try and scare them away with that noise, but that also never works. There's the water trick. You can try and flood their tunnel system with water and and force them out, but I've found that to be hit or miss. They sell straight-up poison available in the shape of little peanuts. You can try and put it in their tunnels, and I've heard that's worked for some people. even have poison gas. I even saw one contraption where you hook up a tube to your car's exhaust and you put it into their tunnel system to gas them out. It sounds kind of desperate to me. The problem with all these methods is that you never really know for certain if the gophers are gone. You don't really know if you got them, or maybe they just went away for a little while. That's why the time-tested, age-old method is still the best, that is traps. You just got to trap them, catch them. It's the most effective way, the surefire way. Just set a trap in their tunnel system, and you'll get them every time. Now, some people may be opposed to trapping and even killing gophers, and, and that's fine. But let me ask you, if your house was built on a raised foundation in relatively sandy soil, like like mine. And let's say you found out that there was a serious gopher infestation that was actually threatening the foundation of your house. Now, I know that's actually quite rare, but just pretend. Like, what if that happened to you? If your soil gives way, your foundation shifts, your house may crack, and then you're in big trouble. So if this were happening to your house, would you then be in favor of trapping the gopher? I think even the most ardent environmentalists would, would be in favor of getting rid of them at that point if their house was in danger, if their foundation was in danger. In a way, this, this reflects the situation going on with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been a real pest to the religious leaders of Israel for, for years now. He exposed them. He opposed them. But they tolerated this Galilean. He was miles away. They just kind of let him be in the north. But now, Jesus, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's in their house. And what's he doing? He's completely undermining the foundation of their house. He's opposing them right to their face in front of all the people. And now, Jesus, he's not just some distant pest anymore. Now he's, he's a real, present, and immediate threat and danger to their whole way of life, their system, their house, the temple. So they can't just let him be. And at this point, the danger Jesus poses to them, it's so serious that a repellent is not going to do it. They need to trap Jesus. They need to kill Jesus. And this is precisely what we see happening near the end of Mark's gospel by the religious leaders of Israel. And we find this now in Mark chapter 12. You can turn there. We'll be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. We're still in day three of Christ's last week of life, where he goes to the temple to teach. Passover is near, so Jerusalem is just swelling with people. They all come to hear him speak the truth, but the authorities, they're there, and they they can't just let him be. He's doing too much damage. He's undermining their authority, so they have to get rid of him. But it's not as easy as it may seem. At the end of chapter 11, we watched as the religious leaders of Israel, all of them came together, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They all united to oppose Jesus and confront him and try and get him out of the way, but it didn't work. In fact, it backfired. and Jesus turned around and set a trap for them. And they had to run away with their tail in between their legs and lick their wounds. and made, They were made to look like fools before the people. And on top of that, Right after that, this is the beginning of chapter 12 now, Jesus went on to condemn them. He told this seriously damning parable in Mark in Mark 12, at the beginning, of these vine growers. And everyone understood, including the religious leaders, that Jesus was talking about them. They are the wicked vine growers. He's condemning them, and everyone knew it, including the religious leaders. Here Jesus was in their temple, their house, making them look bad in front of all the people. So... All the more so after this parable, they they really want to get this guy to trap him. They, they ha, he has to be stopped. This can't continue. And so that's why for the rest of chapter 12, we watch as wave after wave of religious authority comes up to Jesus and just throws a little trap in front of him, hoping he'll walk right into it. They're so desperately trying to get Jesus to say something self-incriminating so that they can discredit him and even arrest him. But it never works. Every time Jesus sees a trap, walks right around it. And that's precisely what we see happening in our text this morning, which technically is their first official trap, trap number one. Mark 12, 13 through 17 is the passage. And these authorities, they've approached Jesus before. But again, this represents their first official concerted effort to really trap him, to to tie him up. Now, it's not a surprise they're going to fail. But in this instance, Jesus actually takes the trap and turns it around and puts it, points it back at them, and they fall for it. What he says here, it's really so profound and so applicable. Uh, it's worth all of our time today. It's a story, a passage I bet you know. But Let's go ahead and begin by reading it through to, to familiarize yourself with it again and get us all up to speed. Mark 12, and read along with me, verses 13 through 17. He's in the temple, and it says... <clears throat> Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me Denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Indeed, what Jesus says here is amazing. Chances are you've heard this passage before, but you may not have fully grasped its significance. This saying, "Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I mean, that was a massive rebuke on these hypocritical religious leaders of Israel. And you need to see why that is. But at the same time, these words, they jump right off the page and into our lives today because what he says still applies. You've heard this saying before, but, but this morning we're going to try and really slow it down and, and unravel what, what he means by this. And how it still applies to us today, here in Mark 12:13 through 17. So that being said, we're just going to take a closer pass through our our passage again, like we always do, really trying to sort out what's going on here, and then what he means by this, and how we too can and should live it out. I'll give you a simple outline to help you follow along. Let's let's begin with this as we make our way back through Mark 12:13 through 17. Begin with number one, an unlikely alliance. Starting us off, number one, an unlikely alliance. And look back at verse 13 again. Starts off and says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now we'll come back to this trap shortly, but first notice who's setting the trap. Some Pharisees and some Herodians. Now have seen the Pharisees before many times These guys were the the ultra-religious Jews. They had a high view of God's law. They were super conservative. They went to extremes to try and keep every single command. They even added their own commands. They were extreme. But that's in total contrast to the Herodians. We've seen these guys only one time before, but they were, just think about the opposite of a Pharisee, and that's the Herodians. They they were Jews, yes, but they had an extremely low view of God's law, and they were super-liberal. Instead, they favored Roman culture. I mean, you know this. Israel was under Roman domination during the time of Christ, and most of the Jews, they hated their Roman overlords and their pagan culture. But the Herodians loved it, and they sought to, to court the favor of the Romans that they might share their power. And this explains their name, the Herodians, taken from the family name of Herod, from Herod the Great earlier to now Herod Antipas, who's the ruler over Galilee And that's the guy, that's the Herod who will play a part in Christ's death shortly. But here's what's really striking about this. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they hate each other. They are total opposites and they hate each other. The Pharisees are opposed to all things Roman, while the Herodians love all things Roman. And these guys, they never work together. They hate each other, but they hate Jesus more. And so like the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There's nothing like hate to bind people together. Jesus poses a real religious threat to the Pharisees and a real political threat to the Herodians, so they're happy to set aside their differences for now and come together to get Jesus out of the way. Still, though, this is such an unlikely passage, or rather unlikely alliance, that it makes you wonder why the Pharisees would even involve the Herodians. I mean, can't they just take Jesus out by themselves? Do the Pharisees really need to recruit the Herodians to get Jesus out of the way? The answer to that is actually yes. They they do need their help. We've seen this one time before. Back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was, he healed on the Sabbath, and he made the Pharisees look bad in the process. And so Mark 3, 6 says, The Pharisees went out. And immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. They've done it before. They're doing it again. So here's the deal. The Pharisees and all the ruling Jews, they know that Jesus is really popular. The, the people, right now at least, they love him. And that's a problem for them because they, they fear the people. And these guys, they feed off of popularity and ego. and they, they wouldn't do anything that would destroy their own support among the people. But they hate Jesus. So to to take him out of the way, they've got to destroy his popularity. That's not easy. They've tried to discredit him in front of the people, but it hasn't worked. And so over time, we we watch as the Pharisees, they realize, you know, if we're going to get Jesus, we need the Romans. We need the help of the Romans. We have to enlist the Romans to do our dirty work. And, And that's what they're trying to do. If they can get the Romans, their hands would remain clean, their popularity undiminished, but Jesus would be taken out of the way. And that's why they're, they're enlisting the Herodians as their allies. If they come together, if they can just get Jesus to say something anti-Rome, then the Herodians can quickly run off, report it to the governor. This would leave, lead to the swift arrest and potential death of Jesus. And that's their plan here. That's their play. Remember, the Romans were very sensitive to the threat of insurrection. This is during Passover. So especially right now, nationalistic sentiments were running high. There's a lot of emotion. And they're weary of any potential rebel against Roman rule. And they they would move quickly against any political threat. So that's what the that's what the Pharisees are trying to do. They know the Romans. They're not going to arrest Jesus over some theological dispute. They don't they don't care about the Jews and their their, their theology. But if it's a political threat, the Romans are going to pounce. And so the Pharisees are teaming up with the Herodians to try and make Jesus out to be a political threat. If they can just get him to say something against Rome, they're going to get him. If you don't really buy this, well, it really seals the deal. The parallel passage in Luke says just this. It really spells it out. Luke chapter 20, verse 20, the parallel says of the Pharisees, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. So that's it. That, that's their play here. That's, that's why we have this unlikely alliance of Pharisees and the Herodians. They hate each other, but they hate Jesus more. And so they're quick to enlist their Roman counterparts when it's expedient to them. Now you may have picked up in Luke twenty that it actually calls the Pharisees out as spies who pretended to be righteous in order to trap him. That's actually not surprising given what given what we find next. Number two an unconvincing flattery an unconvincing flattery. Now look again at verse 14. It says, They came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. And stop there. And when you read this, when you see these words, you should be saying to yourself, Give me a break. These guys are total phonies. This is so bogus. They don't believe any of this. They don't believe that Jesus is truthful for a second. They don't think that he teaches the way of God and truth. In fact, they've let it be known. They think just the opposite. Also back in Mark chapter 3, they were the guys who were saying Jesus is actually possessed by Satan and he teaches the way of Satan. Remember that? I mean, that's what they really think. So this is clearly disingenuous. Now, what they're actually saying is true. I mean, They they may not believe it, but it's actually true. Jesus does defer to no one. He is truthful. He is not partial to any. He does teach the way of God and truth. They don't believe it, but that's all true. It just exposes them as hard-hearted sinners even more. But the attitude behind their statement here is just totally false and pretentious. It begs the question, though, So if they don't really believe this, why are they saying it? And simple enough, it's, it's just flattery. They're just using flattery. Gossip, that's what you say behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is what you say to someone's face that you wouldn't say behind their back. And they're just puffing up Jesus, trying to stroke his ego. And why? Well, first, they want to appear as legitimate truth seekers, as if they have a, a genuine question for the rabbi. I mean, that, that's bogus. They They're not seeking the truth. But more so, they're trying to to set Jesus at ease to lower his guard. That's what flattery does. You flatter someone. Oh, people love being puffed up. It just lowers your guard, catches you off guard. And they really want to keep him from dodging the question they have for him, which really isn't a question, but a trap. And let's see. to number three, an unholy trap. Thirdly, an unholy trap. Again, verse 14 they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? The question sounds simple enough. Should we pay taxes or not? I'm sure it's a question you've had yourself from time to time. But it's actually not a simple question. In fact, it's not even a question at all. It's really a trap, an unholy trap. Back in verse 13, it said they approached him in order to trap him in a statement. The word for trap literally just refers to a hunter's snare or trap. There's stories of hunters in the jungle using a spike trap to try and kill a tiger. They would dig a really deep pit, put some deadly spikes in it at the bottom, cover it up, put some bait on and the hope is that the tiger would approach, and approach the bait, and literally fall for the trap, and and die, of course. Well, here are these Pharisees and Herodians—they're trying to lure Jesus right into their trap, and in this case, they've baited it with the explosive issue of taxes. And you may not be aware, but at the time, paying taxes to Rome was one of the most contentious issues among the the Jews at the time. Israel lost its sovereignty to the Romans in the first century B.C. And ever since, they hated their Roman oppressors. And they hated even more paying taxes to Rome. They felt like they were supporting these wicked pagans. Israel at the time, they believed that God was the only legitimate ruler over Israel. That's good. Some even believed, though, that because of that, they should not taxes to Rome. It was a form of even idolatry to pay taxes to Rome. For example, in AD 6, the year 6 AD, the Romans ordered a census taken of the Jewish people, a brand new one because they were going to start a brand new tax on top of property tax and sales tax. This was now just a head tax, a tax on being alive. And this really, of course, angered the Jews, so much so that a man named Judas of Galilee, not Judas Iscariot, it's a different guy, Judas of Galilee, he, he started a armed revolt against the Romans. Now, they were obliterated. They just got crushed. But the anti-Roman and anti-tax sentiments remained. I mean, the Jews just hated paying taxes to these Romans. So now here's this dilemma they're forcing on Jesus. They ask him, Hey, is it lawful to pay this poll tax to Caesar or not? I mean, should we pay it or should we not? It's it's a yes or no question, and you either say yes or you say no. But either answer would trap Jesus. If Jesus said yes, we should pay the poll tax to Caesar, then he would be betraying the people. This position would seriously undermine Christ's popularity among the crowds. They hated the Romans and these taxes. And furthermore, this would discredit his messianic claims. They were expecting a Messiah who deposed Roman rule, not someone who supported it. There's no way that the Messiah would come and sanction paying tribute to a pagan emperor. And so a yes answer would be very damaging to the popularity and support of Jesus. And they would have been happy with a yes answer. Or if they can just get the crowds to turn on Jesus, then they can take him out themselves without their popularity being diminished. So a yes is not a straightforward answer for Jesus. They're really hoping, though, for a no answer, which is even more damaging. If Jesus said, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, well, he'd make the people happy, but he'd make the Romans pretty upset. And surely the Herodians would slip away And go tell the governor the second Jesus said anything anti-Roman. They would portray Jesus as a rebel against Roman rule. And the Roman authorities, they'd have no choice but to deal with Jesus swiftly and severely. And they're already on to him. Remember the triumphal entry? That made a big stir. And the day before he cleansed the temple, the Roman garrison was posted right next to the temple. So they knew. This guy's already causing trouble. They're on to him. That's like strike 1 and strike 2. This would be strike 3. So to them, this looks like the perfect trap. They give Jesus a yes or no a question, and with either either answer, he's trapped. Remember, Jesus did this to them just just earlier. At the end of Mark 11, Jesus gave them a yes or no question, and either answer, they were trapped. He asked them about John the Baptist, and no matter what they said, they would look bad. And so they were forced to just plead the fifth. They said, well, we don't know. That's almost worse, because these guys, these were the top religious authorities in Israel, and they couldn't answer this simple question about John the Baptist. Make them look like fools. They were humiliated, and now they're thinking, well, we're going to do it to Jesus. We're going to get him back. Here's a yes or no question, and no matter what he says, we're going to get him. So they think they've got him cornered with this unholy trap. But, as always, Jesus doesn't fall for it. And first he points out their hypocrisy. Number four, an unfailing hypocrisy. Number four, an unfailing hypocrisy. Continuing at the end of verse 15, he replied, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. The first, Jesus points out their hypocrisy. He knows exactly what they're up to. The word hypocrite originally referred to a play actor. So the Greeks in their plays, the actor would wear a mask representing his character, even though that's not what he looked like, It's not who he was, that's, that was the role he was playing. And that's still pretty much the definition of a hypocrite, You look one way on the outside, you act one way on the outside, but over here on the inside, under the mask, you're a different person. You act totally differently. And here are these Pharisees. and They're pretending to be righteous, like Luke said. They're putting on a show in front of the crowd. They're pretending to be legitimate truth seekers. But Jesus sees right through their masks or their religious robes, the garb that they're wearing. He sees right through them. They're not there seeking the truth. They're trying to set a trap. And they're not trying to honor God. They're just trying to honor themselves. They flatter Jesus. They try and butter him up, but it doesn't work. He straight calls them out. Again, the parallel in Matthew 22, verse 18, says that Jesus perceived their malice, and he said to them, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Now, earlier, they pretended to compliment Jesus. They said, you you defer to no one. You you don't cut corners. You tell it like it is. And that was actually true, even though they they didn't really believe it. Well, here, he's he's letting them know it's true. He's calling them out. They're the phonies. They're the hypocrites. And their little test is not going to work on him. Theirs is an unfailing hypocrisy. It never ends, never surprises us. So in turn, Jesus, he's going to take this little trap and point it back at them. This brings us to number five, an unexpected question. An unexpected question. Let's start again in verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? then he says, Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesars, And what Jesus does here, it's just brilliant. They baited their little trap. They were expecting a yes or no answer. Jesus doesn't fall for it. He sees the cheese, but he also sees the trap, so he's not going to go for it. Instead, he's going to fix it, change it around, and turn it back on them. He begins by asking them an unexpected question. He answers their question with a question, which always catches people off guard. And even more so, he catches them off guard by asking for denarius. That's the coin used to pay this poll tax. Now, this poll tax or this head tax was due once a year. And the price was one denarius. That's like one day's wage. The Denarius was a silver coin minted by Rome. And the Romans, you have to realize, they used their coinage as propaganda. Many of these denarii still exist Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar or emperor during the time of Jesus. So this denarius, this coin that the Pharisees hand Jesus on one side would have had an effigy, the head of Tiberius Caesar, with an inscription that would have read, Augustus, Tiberius, Caesar, son of the deified Augustus. And on the flip side of the coin, there would be a picture of a woman sitting down, likely Tiberius's mother, with the inscription reading, Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest. As a side note, that's still one of the Pope's titles, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. But anyway, the purpose of these inscriptions and effigies was propaganda. The Romans wanted to continually remind all their subjects that the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, was due to their divine ruler, Caesar and the peace and the prosperity you all enjoy, well, you have to pay them for that in the form of taxes. Now, when you think about it, though, can't these little Roman coins be construed as idols? I mean, here's this silver token with the, the effigy of a, a divine Caesar on it, a guy who claims to be the son of God, Caesar. Isn't that the definition of a graven image? Is not violation of the second commandment. Like that, that's a graven image. It's like a portable idol. And so, wouldn't it be a gross violation to bring one of these portable idols into the temple? You think that'd be a problem to a, a serious Jew, right? And you notice, Jesus, he doesn't have one on him. He's not carrying one of these denarii. Instead, he asks them for one of them, one of these coins, and what do you know? They happen to have one on them. What does that already tell you? It tells you that these Jews have no problem carrying around an image of the supposedly divine Caesar in their pocket, even into the temple. And just by coughing up the coin, their hypocrisy is beginning to be exposed. And Jesus takes it one one step further and says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They answer, Caesar. But think about what they're already admitting. When they say Caesar, they're already admitting their acceptance of this tax. They know this coin belongs to Caesar, and they participate in giving it back to him. The fact that they carry around Caesar's coins and do business with them is an implicit acceptance of Roman rule, and thereby it's taxes. And so by doing this, he's, he's dismantling their trap. They, they ask Jesus this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to, to Caesar? Caesar? And you know the answer to that question? The answer is yes. And Jesus, he's going to say yes in just a minute. But first, he's making them say yes. He's making them admit that the answer is yes themselves before he says anything else. Through their practice, through their possession of a denarius, they've already admitted that these taxes are valid. Which just means they can't trap Jesus without trapping themselves. He takes the wind out of their sails, so trap has been diffused. Now, if this were you or me, we would probably just say, you know, they ask the question, we'd say, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes of Caesar, and you guys do it yourself, so what are you going to say? I mean, you guys do it anyway. But Jesus has a little bit more up his sleeve. He's got more for them. They're now going to walk into his trap, and he has a message for them that they definitely did not see coming. Number six, an unimaginable response an unimaginable response. Here's that famous line. Jesus said to them, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's a famous line. I'm sure you've heard of it before. But I do wonder if you've really grasped its significance, what he's fully saying here. He gives two responses, so let's break it down and do one at a time. He first says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In short, he's saying yes, yes, it is lawful to pay this tax to Caesar. I mean, they already admitted to this with their own practices. They've carried his coin, they should pay his taxes. More literally, Jesus says, the things of Caesar give back to Caesar. Caesar's coin bears his name and his image. It's, it's his coin. They have no problem doing business in Caesar's empire acquiring his currency, enjoying his peace and protection. Therefore, they're bound to pay his dues in the form of taxes. And so if it's not clear, yes, we have Jesus himself supporting the notion of paying taxes and submitting to the government. What you have to realize is that the government is, believe it or not, a good institution ordained by God. Look, all governments have elements of evil and corruption in them. That's because all governments are run by fallen, sinful people. So you say, well, what's so good about government? And the answer is basic peace, order, and justice. I didn't say perfect peace, order, and justice, but I did say basic peace, order, and justice. And surely you agree that's better than the alternative which is no government and therefore no peace, no order, no justice. You don't want that. You don't want true anarchy. I'm not talking about freedom. I'm talking about anarchy. Imagine a society that has no police, no fire department, no hospitals, no schools, no plumbing or water, no sewage, no electricity. Those are all public services. Worst of all, imagine a society with no law and order. There aren't any laws. That means you you can't break a law. There's no laws. You can do whatever you want, and no one will do anything about it. Trust me, that brings out the worst in people. Every now and then, just not even that long ago, we see riots on TV, right? For one or two nights, what happens? There's no law and order. No police, no punishment. Just people are totally free. And does it bring out the best in people or the worst in people? And what happens? Crime skyrockets, violence prevails, the innocent suffer, and there's no one to call on. Imagine if it were always like this. You don't, you don't want that. You don't want no law and order. There actually was a time when this happened, and when this prevailed, and that's right before the flood in Genesis 6. Back then, there were no nations. There were no governments. There was no law. There was no order. The people did whatever they wanted. And the result was what? <coughs> Unchecked violence and bloodshed. People, it's like everyone was a murderer and no one brought them to justice. There was no justice. There was no court or army or police, nothing. It was so bad that God wiped them all out with the flood and started over. And it's no wonder that after the flood, that's when God authorized the human institution of government. Yes, men are sinners and they so quickly corrupt their power. But again, a basic peace, order, and justice is still better than no peace, order, and justice. When evildoers are threatened with punishment and held accountable to some degree, it keeps man's sinfulness in check, and that's a good thing. All of this, of course, is implicit in what Jesus is saying. It's made explicit elsewhere in Scripture. If you want to see the full story, well, you can keep a finger in Mark and just quickly turn over to Romans 13. Can't spend a lot of time on this, but we can read the passage. I bet a lot of you know it in Mark chapter 13. Where Paul, he actually plays off of the words of Jesus here and he he takes it a bit further and explains how God calls us to relate to human governments. It's pretty straightforward. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. Romans 13. Let's read verses 1 through 7. He says, Every person... It's to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. doesn't give exceptions there, just they're from God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. Or he says a second time, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom fear, to whom fear honor, to whom honor. Now I have a ton of time to unpack this. In fact, really not that much time at all. But but simply understand that even wicked governments uphold some sense of justice. When you read this, it's pretty straightforward. God is calling us to submit to all human rule and authority. It's government is a minister of God. He has put it, all rulers in their place. And immediately you think, what about wicked rulers? I mean, do we have to submit to them? And no exceptions are given. Even wicked regimes still uphold some peace, order, and justice we're called to submit to and respect human authorities, and that includes paying taxes. I know you you can try, and some really want to try and argue against submitting to truly wicked governments, but you have to realize that Jesus spoke and Paul wrote during the reigns of Tiberius Caesar and Nero, who were two of the most vile rulers ever. Not just then, but ever. These guys were supremely wicked pagans. But that didn't change what Jesus said or what Paul said. And that says a lot. Now, that being said, there is one exception that I have to point out, as always. God's word is clear. Government, it is a common grace given to uphold some sense of justice in the land, and we are, therefore, to submit to all rule and authority. It comes from God. It is God's minister for justice. Except when the government tells us or directs us to sin or to deny God. And in this instance, we must disobey. For like Peter and the apostles said when they came up to a government that was telling them to deny Christ, they said, we must obey God rather than men. It doesn't have to be either or, but when it becomes either or, we must obey God rather than men. And at that point, a nonviolent, Civil disobedience. It's not just allowed, it's required when the government orders us to go against God's will and God's word. And you, you think, well, that's kind of scary. What does that mean? Well, it means we may be persecuted by the government, it means we may be executed by the government. But the true believer cannot forsake his allegiance to God. The day comes when Christians, even in America, are persecuted for their faith. Well, hey, then we'll, we'll start to see real quick who the true followers and phony followers are. But look, didn't the apostles all die for their faith at the hands of the government? Didn't Jesus die at the hands of the government? He submitted unto death. He didn't pick up a sword. He, he just died. I know, it, it's the ultimate exercise in trusting God. We want to take matters into our own hands. We want to pick up the sword. But like Jesus said, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. We are called to trust God, to submit, take a stand for Him, come what may. It will test you though, how serious were you when you agreed to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? We might soon find out. Well, back to Mark 12. You can go back to Mark 12 now. Look, in short, the answer to the question is yes. Yes, it is lawful to pay taxes. Yes, you should pay. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But let's be, let's be clear here. The emperor must receive his due, but not more than his due. Jesus knew that the emperor claimed divine honor. That he would not give him this. This glory and honor did not belong to Caesar or any man, but to God alone. So render to Caesar only that which belongs to Caesar, but render to God that which belongs to God. This is his second statement now, and by far the more important. Render to God the things that are God's. And here's a new question. What does that mean? What's he talking about with that? Render to God the things that are God. What are those things that we have to render to God? What exactly is he talking about? Well, I want you to think back to that coin, the denarius. Whose image does the coin bear? Caesar's. Whose name does the coin bear? Caesar's. And the point is, the coin belongs to Caesar, so give it back to him. Give him what is his. So now think along those lines. Whose image do you bear? God's whose name do you bear God's therefore what therefore you belong to God your very life belongs to God so render to God what your very life your whole self you are the thing which you must render to God before God you're like that little coin aren't you You were created in God's image, Genesis 1.26 says. As His creation, you bear His name. Therefore, you are to give Him everything. That's what He wants. That's what He is due. Render to God the things that are God's. Or in other words, looking down at Mark 12.30, which He'll say later, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what we're talking about. You're giving God everything. Your entire self. And all that goes with it, you're not holding anything back. Your heart belongs to God, so worship Him from the heart. Your lips belong to God, so sing His praises. Your hands belong to God, so work for Him. Your allegiance belongs to God, your goals belong to God, your direction belongs to God, your aspiration belongs to God, your purpose belongs to God, your decisions belong to God. You see what we're talking about here. And think about that last one, your decisions. Do you have any big decisions coming up soon? Or something that just passed? And what went through your mind in your decision-making process? you have a big decision to make? What goes through your mind? Do you think, what will benefit me? What will make me look good? What's best for me? Is that what you think? Or do you think, what's best for God and His glory? What will make God look supreme? What will benefit the praise of his name. You see the difference? One person has really rendered to God their their whole self, even their decision-making process. Just they live for God in every way. Jesus is calling all of us in this passage to live life completely for God because we owe him everything. So you have to ask, are you doing this? Who sits on the throne of your heart and directs your life? Caesar's not divine. You're not divine. Christ is. So honor him. You want to honor the Father? Well, honor the Son. For he who honors the Son honors the Father. Give your life to Christ. I mean, didn't Jesus die on the cross and rise from the dead in order to pay the penalty for your sins, to forgive you? Didn't he redeem you and purchase you from the slave market of sin? So then, don't you doubly belong to him? He made you, and then He saved you. You owe Him your life twice over. Especially for those who believe in the Son and have been redeemed by Him. You owe Him every last bit of your life. So, render to God the things that are God's. And think about this. Are there any areas of your life that don't belong to God? You have not submitted unto God. You have this little aspect of life, this little category over here that it's not God's. Sure, in most places, you, you'll do what God says. You'll obey his word. you'll Yeah, you'll do it for his glory. But over here, it's kind of your area. This is This is what I do. This is what I do that I want to do. And I don't really care what God says. This is my area, my domain. You know, yeah, you know, God says to sacrificially love your wife or submit to your husband, but you don't really want to do that. You're not going to do that. You know that God says that even even lust and anger are monumental sins, but you you don't really buy that. It's not that big of a deal. You're going to let those slide. See, are there any areas where you're just holding back? He demands and deserves all of you, all of your obedience, no areas of rebellion. Render to God the things that are God's. Sadly, this did not characterize these Pharisees, Getting back to the text, I mean, these are guys, they claimed, this was true, they claim their lives belong to God. This is my whole life is God's. That's what they said. On the outside, it looked true. But on the inside, they were the king of their own castle. They were living for themselves, honoring themselves. And they refused to submit to God from the heart. And it's no wonder that they, in the end, still reject Jesus. I'm going to finish with this, number seven an unbelievable escape. Lastly, an unbelievable escape. The text ends after Jesus makes this statement and it just says they were amazed at him. Or as Matthew 22, 22 says, and hearing this, they were amazed and leaving him, they went away. Or as Luke 20, verse 26 says, these are all the parallels. It says, and they were unable to catch him and essaying saying in the presence of the people, and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. I mean, they tried so hard to set this perfect trap for Jesus, but just unbelievably he escaped again. Like He just got out of it again. And this time he even managed to turn it around and use it on them, make them look once again like fools, like hypocrites in front of the people. All they could do is just leave in a stunned silence, licking their wounds yet again, they'll be back. They'll try again. We'll see that next week in the text. But more disappointing though is, is their ongoing refusal to render God what He is due. Namely, their allegiance. And they display this by rejecting God's Messiah. Jesus came even for them to die for them, to save them. If they would just receive Him. But they didn't want to bow the knee to Jesus. They didn't want to do what he said. They didn't want a Lord and a Master. They just wanted someone who would make them look good and be in power, not the opposite the other way around. So they turned him away. And as a very sad final note, in just a few days from this, these same guys, they would finally succeed in getting Jesus arrested by the Romans with the help of a betrayer, Judas Iscariot. And when Jesus was finally brought before Pilate for trial, do you remember some of the charges they leveled at, at him? I want you to see one. You can leave Mark behind now and just just pop over real quick to Luke twenty-three. Let's see this for yourself. Luke twenty-three. They have not trapped Jesus. They'll never trap him. But he was betrayed and arrested. So they finally got him, one way or another, in front of the Romans. They have this mock trial. It's totally bogus. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Later he'll be, or earlier he was brought before Herod. But he's standing before Pilate. They're leveling their charges. And look at what they say. Luke 23, starting at verse 1. It's talking about the Sanhedrin, all those ruling Jews, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests. It says, Then the whole body of them got up and brought him before Pilate, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the King. Do you see to what lengths these guys will go to just to get Jesus out of the way? Just a bold-faced lie. Jesus said the exact opposite. But they'll say anything, they'll do anything to to keep their way, to not submit to the Lord. They they will say and do anything to justify not submitting to the Lord. They they will completely deny what they know to be true just just to get their way. Don't people still do this today though? Do you perhaps do this? What excuses do you give for rejecting the Son? In your heart of hearts, what do you know to be true, yet you still deny? All because you want to live your life your way. You want to live according to your terms. You want to do what you want to do. You don't want God or Jesus telling you otherwise. You see, when people reject the Son, almost every time, it's not because of an intellectual issue. It's because of a moral issue. The issue is they don't want to render to God the things that are God's. They don't want to give Him their life, their allegiance, their obedience. They don't want to give up control of themselves. But I hope you see where this ends. Don't share the grave of the Pharisees, even the religious hypocrite. It's not enough to look good on the outside. God demands your total life, heart, and body. God created you to render him glory, honor, and praise. So don't hold back. Submit to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, as the ruler of your domain, and follow Him. You need to give your entire life to Him. For, as 1 Corinthians says, you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, all to the glory of God. Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, but to God, the things that are God's. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we all we all need to hear that word. You are the God who created us. You you made us in Your image. You you placed Your own name upon us. And We owe you. We owe you everything. We are nothing but clay vessels, and of course, we owe you our lives our lips of praise, our hands of spiritual work, our heart of worship, and we owe you everything. Yeah, we don't give you, we don't pay taxes, we have rebelled against your rule and authority, authority in our sin, and here we even deserve a judgment. Yet you sent Christ, the Son, the Savior, to die for rebels, to redeem us, to purchase us at the high price of his own life from the slave market of sin, and here we are, we owe you again. We owe you our lives twice over, You've created us. You've redeemed us. How can we not give you our lives? At the same time, Lord, we're still sinners, and we still refuse from time to time. We still, all of us, have our sin where we withhold, we rebel. We don't pay taxes. We don't give you what you what you deserve and are due. We say thank you for your, your mercy and your patience and your forgiveness, but we need to be reminded to render to you what you're due, and that's our whole lives. Lord, we, we resolve to do that. We know we're imperfect. We will do that imperfectly, but we resolve to live our lives for you. It's so worth it. And that even leads to our own joy and our own blessing. You've designed us to find satisfaction in you. This is only for our good. Lord, help us to keep to keep fighting against sin, to give you what you are due. Yes, and we'll submit to our human governments. We pray for our own government. In the future, and who knows what's to come, if persecution arises again, that, that may happen. We, we trust you in that. But ultimately, we're, we're going to submit to you. We're going to render you the praise you, you deserve no matter what. Even if that means we're persecuted, even if it costs us our lives, give us that strength, that boldness to do that. You're worth it, Lord. We want to live for you, so help us. Give us the grace needed to render to you all that you are due. Thank you for this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.